Hello and welcome to the Mal and Johnny Show. Our special guest this week is Stephen Parry. Uh, his company's called Mr. Producer, and he is Mr. Producer. He's also Mr. Singer, Mr. Actor, Mr. Dancer, Mr. Musical Theatre, just about everything. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. I've never, ever been called Mr. Dancer, and I don't think I ever will again. You're a man of many talents, man of many talents. He's mixing you up with me, Mr. Tap Dancing in the garage. <laughs> How are you both? Are you all right? Well, yeah, we're good. Oh, boiling. I'm in the shed. If, if you hear any noises, next door but one has got a got a lovely um, a pool, you know, hot tub. So we might hear that this afternoon. And I've got the fan on as well. So I, I apologise for any extraneous noises. What about you, Johnny? Uh, well, I've been uh, to Fourth Call yesterday, swimming in the sea with the grandkids. Lovely. And they're upstairs in the paddling pool at the moment. So if you hear any noises, then. <laughs> <laughs> and you look, you look as if you've been working out, Stephen. Um, yes, only for the last half hour, sadly. That's the only thing. But um, you may hear noise from me because I am more or less in my garden, as oh, you can see there. Oh, it's lovely. lovely. I've opened the door, so anything could happen. Squirrels, <laughs> anything. Anything could happen. You know, the first time I worked with you, Steve, because I'd known you for 100 years, but I think it was um, Codier Tour. I think you uh, that was your idea, I believe. And you, yeah, you produced I co-produced it. I well, I was the creative producer on that. That was a series for S4C where... Um, we we got a, a circus ring and a circus tent. That's and right. We did a whole light entertainment show within the circus. It was fantastic. We had a huge orchestra with our friend... Uh, uh, was Jay it Alexander? Jay? Was it Jay? Jay? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. He was conducting. We had dancers. These were the days when there was things called budgets. <laughs> yeah. And light entertainment. Long yes. time ago. Long time ago. And I was allowed to do... People allowed me to make my ideas come true instead of going... Oh, no, I don't think we can afford that. Can you do something cheaper? <laughs> yes, with right. the radio. Did you, did you always have big ideas, Stephen? You know, growing yeah. up, North Wales you come from originally, isn't it? Where, where are you North East Wales, a place called Hosanachrigog, which sounds a bit like a throat infection if you don't speak Welsh. Um, yes, I've always had big ideas. And, um, yes, if that just comes naturally. That's nothing I try to do. I always think big. I'm, I'm a bit larger than life. My house is like that. My life is like that. My my contact list is like that. What about? Um, I mean, what, what about your family? Because I've seen your mum. I mean, she's she's very she's very normal Welsh mum. Uh, where, where does the showbiz come from in that case? Hey, she's hardly normal. Let's oh, just get that straight. <laughs> I've just seen her for the first time since a year last October. Oh. I saw her the last two days has been the most magnificent time, because me and my mother are more like brother and sister, yeah. if not son and daughter. Yeah. And I haven't seen her because of the whole of the lockdown, and she's been through an illness. She's come out the other end. So we've just seen each other. But there's none of this silly showing off malarkey in my family. Yeah. Mm. Um, my mom, Well, my, my aunt, my brother's sister, was um, could have become a world-renowned um, opera singer, she got she got very very far. She'd had a series with Stuart Burrows years ago on um, BBC Wales. Her name was Betty Parry, but she lost all her confidence and she was winning everything. And I've got recordings of it. And whenever I go on people's programs and they ask me to choose a song, I always choose her singing. And she is or was phenomenal, but she never went with her talent. Where I think I've gone further than my talent could take me. <laughs> she didn't go as far as her talent could take her. When, when, yeah, yeah. My father was a rent collector and my, my mother ran a fish and chip shop. 
Yeah. I mean, first, you know what yeah. amazes me? Sorry, uh, I won't ask you about it. You wrote a book, but you did it bilingually, didn't you? You had one side was Welsh and one side was English. I've never known anybody else do that before. Well, they, they haven't. They've not done a, a, a biography, an autobiography, but that's coming back to that's what, what Mal was saying. Now, I, the, when the publisher said, uh, will you write a book? They'd asked me two or three times, and in the end I said yes, but I want to do a bilingual one. They said, oh, we can't do that because we don't do them. They've not been done before. And I'm going, well, that is a good reason why. Yeah, yeah. They said, oh, no, 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 we don't have the business plan for that. And I said, well, how are we going to do it? And they said, well, you know, maybe we'll do it in Welsh first, and if that goes well, then we do it in English. And I said, well, what will you be measuring? Yeah, Because that yeah. doesn't make any sense. That's so right. I said, no, I can't be bothered. And I'm... I'll do it my way or not way, no way at all. So I wasn't being grand. That sounds grand the way I said it. I just said, well, listen, I'll leave it until the time is right. Yeah, And yeah. the idea was right because six months later they came back and said, we've had a great idea. Why not do it? <laughs> <laughs> and um, apparently it's the first ever bilingual autobiography and it's gone really well, especially, well, not especially, but even lo- what I didn't expect when I wrote it because a book really has to reflect you. And I didn't see the point of having a book that didn't reflect me. And I'm bilingual, so that's why I did it. And yeah. I thought of the sales and I thought of the the concept was, was sort of appealed to me very much. Um, but I didn't want just a literal translation. So I basically wrote two books because some of my references in the English ones, like some of the big stars I've worked with or some of the gossip, doesn't really translate into no, Welsh no. or vice versa. So I've written two books stuck together with the same photographs in the middle. But learners absolutely love it because they can read the English or they can read the Welsh. And if they're not too sure, they can look at the English and usually it follows. So you've got, if you turn the book around, is that the way it works? Uh, uh, Or is it like every other page? I'm going to take, I'm going to get one. You can come with me now. Let's have a little look. I'm going to get one and I will show you. Basically, one side is in English and that is facing one way. Hold on, caller. So that is, that is... I'm doing. I'm taking you with me because if you saw what I had on below, it'd be very embarrassing. But anyway, so that is the Welsh side, which is Athanavor, right, which right. means out with it. Right. And then you flip it the other way round, and it's in English. Wow. That's great. People think out with it has got all sorts of meanings to it, and it has all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there's lovely pictures of. Like my screen stalker, Sean. Oh, oh, lovely Sean. We gotta get um, Sean on one of these days. Yeah. Me me making um Prince Charles wet himself laughing, Gainer, Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> and it's great. I, I'm really pleased with it. And it still sells, so that's good. And if that's anybody good. wants a copy, they can go to mrproducer.co.uk. So there you go. <laughs> so, all right. We, right. Look, we're gonna to get to all those big names, but but from it's a long way to all of those famous faces. Where, where did it start? How did you get your first sort of breaks? Ooh, I think my first break, I made my first break happen. And I think the first, the only important break I had was the first yes. And that was, and this is the God's honest truth. On my first day of school, which was the age of three in that, in that period of life, many, many moons ago, 58 years ago, although I only look 23. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother handed me over to the headmistress, Miss Brenda Jones. And apparently the first thing that came out of my, my 
mouth was, please, miss, can I organise a play on Friday? <laughs> and, she, and she said yes, like any good enabler should. And I wrote the most horrendous um, ghost story play. It was called Asprid Brynabrain, the spirit of Brynabrain, which was a, a council estate around the corner to me. That I was scared of going into because all the boys always wanted to beat me up. So I made out there was a ghost there and that's why I didn't want to go. And I wrote this story. I obviously give myself the lead role. I give my friends smaller parts and those who didn't want to be my friends had to clap. And I don't remember anything about the play, but I do remember those applause. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. Apparently, the teacher came up to me and said, congratulations. Obviously, she did half an hour off to do whatever she wanted while I was entertaining the school. And then the second sentence that came out of my mouth after that was, can I organise another one next Friday? And I managed to create something to do publicly every Friday. And the more I, I say this story everywhere I go, but the, I still can't quite believe that I did it, but... Every class and every school, right up until my A-levels, and during my A-levels, I performed or created or did something publicly every Friday. The only Fridays I wasn't doing it, I was either ill, performing somewhere, or competing in the Estenwood. And I did that right through school. Well, a great training for the job that you've got now. But, yeah, but all right, you, you can produce. We know you're going to produce things eventually. But being the star on, on, a, on, a, on a stage, you know, musical theatre, was, was that the first love or was straight acting? Because you've done, you've done both. I thought I told my teacher, well, she actually said years ago, the teacher that said the first yes, if this man isn't a producer, I'll eat my hat. And when <laughs> I was writing my... my, my um, I was writing in a scrapbook when I was 16 because I keep everything. And I say, actually, Mrs. Jones thought I was going to be a producer, but how wrong she was going to be because I'm going to be an actor. But then I wow. turned out to be an actor, a singer, a presenter, a producer, a show-off. <laughs> but the, so the first love for me, I think I've always been musical and I, I adore music. It's in my life every day, all sorts of genres, um, I I love it. Um, but I think I wanted... I don't like singers that I don't believe when they're singing. They don't believe their own words, do they? Unless they sing the words and they yeah. mean and they put their soul into it, it means nothing to me whatsoever, which is, therefore, I have a ball when I'm judging in the Estelvod because somebody comes on and it's either bang or it's yeah. off. John, I saw you in the Ostead, but the Cardiff one, doing your one-man show. It was funny as hell. You were talking about the divas. Do you remember? Yeah. That was funny. Yeah, well, <laughs> those are a lot of stories from the, from the book, really, because I've done so many things and started off as an actor, did Espadorec, did some theatre, then did Brookside, and it was the last two weeks of my two-year stint in Brookside that I said to one of the actresses, I'm going to go now, I'm, gonna, I'm leaving, and I'm going to go and sing in a musical. And she said, which one? And I said, oh, I don't know yet. And everybody started laughing at me, and I couldn't understand why. And I said, well, it was Kate Fitzgerald, it was, who played Doreen Carkill. And I said, Kate, why are you laughing? She said, well, it just sounded like that's what you were going to do. And I went, I am. 
And I've always thought like that. I hasn't. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, if only I would be so lucky that somebody would give me an audition and yeah. therefore think I'm good enough. I've always gone and got. Yeah, you just went for it. That is a different... That is the only way to success. You two know that yourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't go and try. I either go and get or I don't go at all. Yeah. I mean, going going to get that audition, how, you know, all right, you're going to go and get it, but you still got to go and get it. How did you go and get it? Um, I had an agent. I got one of the best agents I could at the time. Um, I said, I'm in, in a soap opera. I think now is the time for me to get a part in a musical and not start off in the chorus because I'm already recognised in Brookside. She agreed. And an audition came up for a musical called Metropolis, which cost a fortune and lasted nine months. And it was based on Fritz Lang's film. And it had bonkers people like Brian, uh, Brian Blessed in it, who did nothing but shout and sing off key all day. I hope he doesn't hear this, but <laughs> the truth hurts, Brian. Um, and um, I went for an audition. They asked me to prepare a certain song, and I remember rehearsing it for days, for hours, till my mother one day said, if you don't come out of that bedroom and we go out for dinner, before you get this job, I will die of hunger. <laughs> and I, I, had, I had to go in and nail this song. And I went in yeah. and I felt I nailed the song. They recalled me. So I had to learn another song. And I spent that whole week nothing doing nothing else, just working on that song, not just vocals, but on the meaning and... Mm how it would affect someone and how I would like to hear it being heard. And I just went for it and I got the part. Um, I had a solo in it. It wasn't the lead role, but I had a, a, a nice part in it. And I had a beautiful song, which I hated the lyrics because it didn't mean anything. So I rewrote my own lyrics in my first West End show. And they allowed me to. I can't believe that. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, i just come out of a soap opera playing in the first gay cake. I'd done the first gay kiss on British telly. So it was quite taboo at the time. And the, the lyrics for the song was, and the sun never shines because the straights never bend. And I thought, I am not going to sing that on the West End stage. That is not what. So if you go to the album, I sing, the sun never shines because the rules never bend. And they never oh. knew. They never knew I'd rewritten it. Do you know what? That, you. So I did that and then I got an audition for Phantom of the Opera and I had 11 recalls and it was between, if you'd read the book, you wouldn't even need me on this programme, but 11 recalls, I had to learn the whole show and on a very hot Friday afternoon, just like the heat that we're going through at the moment, it was myself and, and an actor called Robert Meadmore, who was quite a well-known singer in the West End at the time. And I thought he had a voice a little bit like Larry the Lamb. Sorry, Robert, but I did. Truth is. And I actually, we had to sing with all the other understudies and we were in full costume. And um, the producer was there, the one and only um, Sir Cameron Mackintosh. And... Uh, I had to sing the whole show and I had listened. I did the scene, then he did the scene, then he'd do the next scene and i do the... And every time I heard him going, I actually thought, I've got this in the bag. It's, it's gone down from hundreds to us too. And he sounds so nervous, I'm going to get this. And I got home and I waited for the phone to ring and I waited for the phone to ring and I waited for the phone to ring. And then a knock on the door, a man in Lycra with a massive big bouquet of flowers 
Jeroboam of Champagne and a branded envelope from Sir Cameron Mackenzie's office. And I thought, this is it, this is it. And I opened the envelope and it said, unfortunately, and I'm like, my heart, I could hear it crashing to the floor. And I didn't read the rest of it. I just drank some champagne, cried and went to bed. And I felt bereft for two whole days. And then about a week and a half later, I went back to the letter and read it. And it said, let's hope something else happens better for you soon. And two weeks later, Cameron McIntosh offered me the part of Marius <laughs> in Les Miserables, which Fantastic. was the best part. <laughs> yeah. showbiz! It you know, it. Cameron McIntosh, I've got a programme somewhere, and I'm looking at it the other day. It was a musical I did in the Fortune Theatre back 1969, I think it was. And he's Wines and Spirits, ASM, Cameron McIntosh. Yeah. And I sent him a copy, and I had such a lovely letter back. And he said, I remember the write-up of that show. He said, the best, what was it? He said, the best material I saw was when the curtain came down at the end. <laughs> <laughs> what you've said there, Johnny, is so right, because he he would have remembered, though. He, he absorbed all That's that. That's right, yeah. He started very much behind the scenes, and That's he right. knew every single cog that goes into that machinery, which yeah. is why he is still the only producer that has made blockbusters all over the world time and time and time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I was sharing a flat with Michael Ball when he was going to be playing, when he started, when he created Marius. And they had a run of the show about a week before it opened. It was 12 hours long. It was, and everything was wrong with it. And and then it started previews and then people were slating it. Mm. And Cameron McIntosh, turn that into the most important musical that's ever been on this earth. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Phenomenal all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, listen to what you're saying about Cameron McIntosh, but about yourself, you know, because people see Stephen Parry, you get up and you do this and you do that, and it's it's all very easy. But it's not, is it's it? Not. You know, you have to pay your, you have to pay your dues. You have to spend that week learning the song and doing your very best, and you have to cope with disappointments. That's what this industry does to all of us. I mean, I suppose, you know, we're almost like the Survivors Club, the three of us here. We've all had those sort of experiences, but we're still, we're still in the game, all three of us, boys. I'm still in Never the game. In. If you got that survival, you, you'd be out of the game before you started anyway. I mean, I do a lot of mentoring now and help people with confidence and stuff. And um, people don't realise that I lose. We, no, none of us, are, I, I make it look like I'm confident in everything. I'm not. A lot of it is cheek. Some of it is charm. I don't believe in luck. And the rest, but the rest of it's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's the only business where you put yourself up to be bloody knocked down again. I mean, and people who've got ordinary jobs don't see that side of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, you know, you've also got to be hungry. I remember, for example, Alwyn, your better half, Johnny, yeah. was in my first job that I ever did, and on a series called Colleague for yes, HTV. That's, that's how old I am, HTV Wales. Yeah, and I knew that she was with Johnny. <laughs> and I was known everywhere. And I was just so, I wasn't starstruck, but I remember being fixated on what, how, what has he done to get there? And it's yeah. from people like yourselves, you know, unless, unless you've got that drive and that hunger, 
It is the most ridiculous, unfair, stupid industry in the whole world. I know, I know. I remember Gordon Mills told me once, he said, if you're a boxer, you knock out the, the champion of the world, you're champion of the world. If you're the best singer in the world and you don't get the breaks, you don't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's the funniest business in the world, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And I remember when I was singing Les Miserables and I thought, I bet there's far better singers in the audience than me, but they haven't got the job. So here goes, take yeah. this. Yeah. And that's, that's the only way to, to, to oh, do yeah. it. Now, obviously, now the other thing you've got, you, you say cheek charm, all those type of things. Uh, you don't get a contacts book like the one I'm sure you've got somewhere there in the background. You don't get that without working really hard on those connections. And that's enabled you then as Mr. Producer to call on those people for some of the biggest shows in Welsh television and some of the, you know, the biggest shows in Welsh theatre as, as well, you know, regardless of uh, other stuff around the world. The things here in Wales that you've created uh, are landmark, landmark theatre projects, TV projects. Well, I- I've been, I, the timing was lucky and thought, well, not lucky, I'm not going to use that word, stop it, Stephen, but <laughs> fortunate. But it was after Les Mis, really, that I remember being on the stage thinking, well, I was being, started being offered Michael Ball's Understudy or Second Cover This, and, and I was going, well, no, I've, I've sung here, sung some of the best songs in musical theatre, with an orchestra beneath my feet. I want to make things happen. I'm not going to wait for the phone to ring. And that's when I thought of starting Mr. Producer because before then I'd been doing a lot of events, either presenting them or or taking part in them and singing in them. That was so bad in Wales with no rehearsal, no creativity, no vision, no no Nothing. hope whatsoever. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can do better than that. So there's no point in slating them do something better. So I started doing events. And then I also started the Welsh Society, SUS, Social Welsh and Sexy. And that was for the same reason when I was living in London, all the Welsh societies that all seemed to be living in the past as far as I was concerned, were inviting me and Sean Lloyd to all these do's where the most exciting thing was was a dry Welsh cake on a plate in the corner. And I thought, I can't slate these people off, do something better. So with putting those two together, the next minute I have, and I think I still got, one of the best contact lists you could have because I then got Catherine Zeta's lips to be the logo of the, the logo for the, the, um, uh, the Welsh Society. There was Bryn, Terrell, Johan, Matthew, you name it, uh, Barney, everybody was a member of that. Then I was doing concerts, so I was getting bassy, all these various people, and I just went from strength to strength. And what I didn't do is look back. All I kept doing is, how did I do it last time? What did I do wrong? Let's get it better. Mm -hmm. And it was during the time when there was more money around because no way would I have had the chance to do such a glorious opening of the Wales Millennium Centre of three consecutive nights with it ending in a royal gala with 10,000 people singing in the Oval Basin to um, Bryn Terwell with fireworks, with <laughs> being naked male and female dancers, with backpacks, with fireworks coming off them on the roof of the Millennium Centre. Then the Ryder Cup opening that went live on Sky. I wouldn't have been able to do that unless the timing of money was around at the same time but i did have the contacts and i've still got them because contacts are people you have to keep it's a relationship it's the like trouble you- is 
I always know you two. We can always contact each other because we keep a relationship. Yeah, yeah. the trouble with you is I don't think big enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, wouldn't it be great in this initial... Can you imagine, Johnny, being in the initial production meeting? What I want is 10,000 singers, fireworks. I mean, what's, what are the reactions? What are the reactions when you say those type of things? I will tell you, there's a, there's a guy called Chris Bevan who I am so grateful to. He's a friend of mine. He lives not far from here. And um, I, pre- I presented the first ever um, BAFTA Cymru Awards with Sean Phillips, which was a, a horrendous experience. It was live with no talk back from the producers, and it was live on BBC Two Network. And it was scary. And then after that, they asked me, would I produce it? Oh, and I thought, well, I've got to do bigger, I've got to do better. Um, and I came up with an idea. And the idea was, you know the song, Queen of the Night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, which I did <laughs> rather well then, so I think I've warmed up. So I had my friend, Sean Coffey, to record that. Another friend of mine, John Ray, to, to produce it so that it came out like, um, it was like a garage band version. It was a real head-banging club mix, okay? Right. And I took this to her. I'd done that before the before I told the production company. So I said, right, this is what I want. I want Sean Coffey will be in a big, beautiful, white uh, crinoline. And all of a sudden, the crinoline will open. And from a hole between her feet on the floor will come out 240 dancers, starting off at the age of five, and they'll be in little Welsh costumes. And as they get older, the costumes will get sexier and sexier. And by the end, there will be girls in um, red and green bikinis and men in speedos and sarongs. And I said, she is coming to give birth to the new Wales. (laughs) That's exactly what they did. They all laughed, apart from him, and he said... I'm going to make that happen. Isn't that brilliant? And it did. And everybody still talks about that. It was never televised, but it was a moment where the following year, BAFTA Cymru had so much sponsorship because everybody wanted to be at these events. And that's just because I thought, well, it's, it's easier to do that than to go to the moon. And if you can have a hole in a stage, and I know dance companies that would have done it for nothing, that would all have red and green clothes at home, I knew it was a, it's nothing isn't, the only person stopping you from doing anything at all is yourself or other people. And if they do, move them out the way and carry on. Yeah. Um, The book is called... well, it talks about yeah, out with it. It talks about your your own personal journey. The world is a, hopefully a different place than the one you grew up with yeah. in uh, yeah. You've had you had yeah. to, uh, You've had to fight your own battles. This I got this. Sorry, sorry about that. It's very warm here this afternoon. Um, tell me about those battles as well, and tell me about that that journey because I'm sure Johnny and I we we've known people who have you know lived your life, but if they've lived in, in secret in the past, Johnny, you weren't allowed to be um, to be homosexual in in the same yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. People that's knew right. about it. I mean, I've always street. I've always worked with with gay guys because show business always had gay people in it because they're very artistic and so on. And I've never ever thought of them as anything other than my friend Tudor Davis or whoever it is. They're just friends and guys. But then you got the general public. There was this thing about you've got to make fun of them. You know what I mean? And call them all these names which you can't use anymore. Um, 
but thank God it's all changed now. Yeah, and, and, but yeah. and they weren't allowed to be publicly, were they? they it was all sort of hidden. No. And if it came no, out, it'd be front page of the, of the news of the world. That It's a different well, world now. the law at one point. Of course. Totally. It was against the law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ted Ray, the old comedian, used to say, um, homosexuality used to be illegal. Now it's legal. I think I'll go before it's compulsory. <laughs> I thought it was rather a nice joke. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it hard for you then, Stephen? Stephen, in you know in those early days, trying to, you know, did you have to hide yeah, it? It was, but I I I'm really proud of the way I dealt with it, and I think it's to do with the support and the love of my family. Not that they knew, but just the love and support and the confidence they gave me at home. I realised I was very different to everybody else, but I also realised that it wasn't just my sexuality. It was also my creativity. It was all also my my mindset. It was also my sense of humour. It was also my sense of drive. It was I was different in a lot of ways. And coming from a small, close knit uh, mining community, the easiest thing to do is to you've got to fit in and blend in. And I've never blended in with anyone. That's why I never competed in a duet or. Where never took part in a choir because I didn't want to blend in. This is me. I'm going to make my mark. I'm not going to be here long. Ta-ra. And that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I did have a lot of grief from people, but I dealt with it in, I think, quite a, a clever way. For example, um, and this is nothing to do with my sexuality now, but then again it is. Uh, a teacher in when I was about eight or nine, I had a brother who was highly intelligent, uh, an absolute uh, academic, and he was four years older than me, so he was ahead of me in school, obviously. And this teacher every day used to say to me when I, in uh, registration, why aren't you like your brother? Why can't you be as good as your brother? Why aren't your marks as good as your brother? Your mother and father must be so disappointed in you. And what she did is all these people that had become um, people that admired me because I was on the stage every Friday, so they were applauding me. She was also making them laugh at me and make or make them feel sorry for me. Mm. Yeah. So, I did something which I, I talk about now when I do my mentoring because I think it's really quite an important story. But I went home. I didn't cry. I, I did feel sad. I am, very, I am a very sensitive person, but I don't just sit and mope. I do something about it. So I went home, didn't tell my parents, and I made a badge in Welsh, white cardboard, very sophisticated sellotape and a, a pin on the back, and I carved passionately in red Bic Biro in Welsh, my name is Stephen and not, underlined, Anthony. That was the age of eight. And I went to school the next day wearing this badge. And that woman, well, I'm not going to call her a teacher, but when I go to schools, I've, I've said that I, I, I honestly can't remember her name now, which is, says a lot. But I've christened her Miss Bitch. And when I say that, the kids absolutely <laughs> love it. But from that day on, Miss Bitch backed off. Yeah. And I'm convinced that I learned very early on that you're the only person that's got the right to build a brick wall on your journey. Nobody else has to. And if they do, remove them. And yeah. I think that card moved her out of the way. I then had the same problem in an amateur dramatic society 
where the um, the director um, would. I sat in this chair watching them rehearse twice a week from six to nine on a Tuesday and Thursday in a disused pub on the bo- on the corner of our road, which made me feel like I lived in on Broadway. They were doing two musicals a year, and I sat there and I could prompt them on every line of every song of every character or every show without the book in front of me because I just knew the show and I'd stand in the wings, but this guy would never, ever give me a part. And then he said one day, we're going to be doing open auditions for Oliver. And I felt, I felt my heart explode. I went home and I learned where is love. Yeah. Which was going to be, and then, it was going to be, I was going to look a bit stupid if you'd have given me the part because I'd been brought up in a fish and chip shop. So for me to say, please, sir, can I have some more? I think would have brought the house down when they think you've probably had a double portion already, mister. Anyway, I learned the song. I queued up with everybody else or every child in the village. Even my brother auditioned and he had no interest whatsoever. And that man, and I won't give his name because I don't think he deserves it. Um, and sadly, he's no longer with us. But he gave a part to every other child bar me. Jealousy. And I and the way I dealt with that, well, I've asked the kids when I go around schools, ask the kids, they'll say, did you kill him, sir? Or <laughs> I like this one. Did you push Oliver off the stage and take over? And the even better answer I got was, did you organise Oliver yourself? And I said, no, what I did, I sat there and I thought, why are you trying to stop me? Watch me. I'm going to use you as my fuel to get there. And the next minute, I was in the West End. Do you know what, boys? Uh, yeah. we've, we've run out of time. We've only scratched the surface. I want to say thank you ever so much, Stephen. No, that's brilliant. I'm sure we will return if you have uh, some more moments. Johnny, you better say goodbye to Stephen, and so will I as well. Is that all right? That's it. Hoi var, Steve. Nice you can't talk. talk so much. I've taken up the whole programme. That's the no, idea. Well, that's why we got you on. We knew you could talk underwater, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Steve. God bless. Bye-bye.